This is Gil Manser welcoming you to April's Word-by-Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM. Today's guest is the celebrated novelist and master of the short story, Eric Buchner, reading aloud and chatting about his latest collection, Last Day on Earth. With a B.A. from Vermont's Middlebury College and an M.F.A. from the University of Arizona, Tucson, Eric taught locally at San Francisco State and Stanford. He is the recipient of numerous awards, including a Wallace Dickner Fellowship, a Pushcart Prize, a National Endowment for the Arts Grant. Uh, his collection, Music Through the Floor, was a New York Times Book Review Editor's Choice and a finalist for the New York Public Library Young Lions Fiction Award. He's also a Penn Faulkner Award finalist. He currently uh, is a professor of the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins and lives in Baltimore with his novelist wife, Catherine Noel, and their daughter, Tess, and son, Clem. We've got to talk about Clem. That's not a name you often hear. <laughs> Last month's word-by-word guest, Yi Yun Lee, writes the following about Eric. Eric Buchner is an alchemist who captures the joy and danger in everyday life with the precision, humor, and empathy, turns these moments into gold in an unforgettable collection from a great storyteller. Eric, I welcome you to Word by Word. Thank you so much. It's really a pleasure to be here. Good. There are nine stories in this collection, and they fall into different categories, which made me wonder, why did you select these nine, and why did you put them in this particular order, or is there a logic to it? Oh, no, there's definitely a logic to them. Um, I mean, I think that's something that story writers... um, uh, spend a lot of energy on, which is thinking about how to order their collection, which <laughs> what the first story should be, what the last story should be. And, uh, I mean, ideally, I think you're hoping for some sort of larger narrative arc. Um, you are, the writer. I am, yes. yes. One is, one who is uh, putting together a collection, and um, just as every individual story obviously has its own narrative arc, I think you want to... I, not that obviously you're going to have the same sense of narrative arc as you would in a novel, but I do think that there is... Um, there's a lot of time and effort, uh, both expended both from the writer, but also uh, from the editor, uh, trying to decide exactly how to order it properly. How to order it properly. Yeah. And this is the proper order. <laughs> well, it is, what? Um, it is what it is. It's inevitable now, right? <laughs> that feeling of inevitability to it. Um, yeah, well, you, know, I, you know, I don't know. Could you, uh, in the online version, could you change the chapters around and put them in different sequences? I don't know. I've never read anything on a Kindle, so oh. I, I can't. Yeah, I haven't either. It comes up on my page as a PDF. Cause... <laughs> I don't think you can move it around, um, but maybe you can. Be interesting. We need to ask somebody who's younger. Yeah. Than, than, uh, <laughs> That's uh, true. Is there, is there something you'd like to share specifically that you have picked out? I have several things that I can go to. Um, in terms of reading yeah. aloud? So they can uh, hear how you write. Um, let's see. Well... There is some salty language in some of them. Yeah, I mean, that's I'm, not radio in, friendly. So. That's right. We are not reading about which one is it? The one about the 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 woman who puts on the mask and goes on the trick or treating. Yes, I couldn't find. I had some wonderful parts, <laughs> and then I said, "Oops, can't go use that." Well, Oops. that's what I was thinking about because that's what I've been reading aloud at uh, bookstores. <laughs> But there's always I always make sure there are no small children in the audience um, before I begin that story. So. Um, why don't you tell me something? To read okay, well, let's. I'm going to talk a little out of order. I'm going to start with Beautiful Monsters, if we will. I've got some sure. things marked here. So, um, if you can start 
where it's a little long, but that's all right. I'm gonna, I picked this purposely because it was a little long. Start right at the beginning of the story, mm-hmm. and then just go to right there. Okay. Okay. Easy. There you go. You need any setup? No, we're just going to start at the beginning. You don't need a setup. Yeah, no, I don't think I need to okay. set it up at all. Uh, beautiful monsters. The boy is making breakfast for his sister, fried eggs and cheap frozen sausages furred with ice, when he sees a man eating an apple from the tree outside the window. The boy drops his spatula. It is a gusty morning, sun-sharp and beautiful, and the man's shirt flags out to one side of him, rippling in the wind. The boy has never seen a grown man in real life, only in books, and the sight is both more and less frightening than he expected. The man picks another apple from high in the tree and devours it in several bites. He is bearded and tall as a shadow, but the weirdest things of all are his hands. They seem huge, grotesque, as clumsy as crabs. The veins on them bulge out, forking around his knuckles. The man plucks some more apples from the tree and sticks them in a knapsack at his feet, ducking his head so that the boy can see a saucer of scalp in the middle of his hair. What do you think it wants, his sister whispers, joining him by the stove. She watches the hideous creatures strip their tree of fruit. The boy might be out of work soon, and they need the apples themselves. The eggs eggs had begun to scorch at the edges. I don't know. He, He must have wandered away from the woods. I thought they'd be less ugly, his sister says. The man's face is damp, streaked with ash, and it occurs to the boy that he's been crying. A twig dangles from his beard. The boy does not find the man ugly. He finds him, in fact, mesmerizing. But he does not mention this to his sister, who owns a comic book filled with pictures of handsome fathers, contraband drawings of twinkling, well-dressed men playing baseball with their daughters or throwing them high into the air. There's nothing well-dressed about this man, whose filthy pants, like his shirt, look like they've been sewn from deerskin. His bare feet are black with soot. Behind him, the parched mountains seethe with smoke, charred by two-week-old wildfires. There have been rumors of encounters in the woods, of firefighters beset by giant, hairy-faced beasts stealing food or tents or sleeping bags, of girls being raped in their beds. The man stops picking apples and stares right at the kitchen window, as if he smells the eggs. The boy's heart trips. The man wipes his mouth on his sleeve, then limps down the driveway and stoops under the open door of the garage. He's stealing something, the boy's sister says. He barely fits, the boy says. Trap him. We can padlock the door. The boy goes and gets the twenty-two from the closet in the hall. He's never had cause to take it out before. Their only intruders are skunks and possums, the occasional raccoon, but he knows exactly how to use it, a flash of certainty in his brain, just as he knows how to use the lawnmower and fix the plumbing and operate the worm drive saw at work without thinking twice. He builds houses for other boys and girls to live in. It's what he's always done. He loves the smell of cut pine and sawdust in his nose, the vzzt of screws buzzing through sheetrock into wood. And he can't imagine not doing it, any more than he can imagine leaving this windy town ringed by mountains. He was born knowing these things, will always know them. They are as instinctive to him as breathing but he has no knowledge of men, only what he's learned from history books and the illicit, sentimental fairy tales of his sister's comic book. He tells his sister to stay inside and then walks toward the garage, leading with the rifle. The wind swells the trees, and the few dead August leaves crunching under his feet smell like butterscotch. For some reason, 
perhaps because of the sadness in the man's face, is not as scared as he would have imagined. The boy stops inside the shadow of the garage and sees the man hunched behind the lawnmower, bent down so his head doesn't scrape the rafters. One leg of the man's pants is rolled up to reveal a bloody gash on his calf. He picks a fuel jug off the shelf and splashes some gasoline on the wound, grimacing. The boy clears his throat loudly, but the man doesn't look up. Get out of my garage, the boy says. The man startles, banging his head on the rafters. He grabs a shovel leaning against the wall and holds it in front of him. The shovel in his overgrown hands looks as small as a baseball bat. The boy lifts the twenty-two up to his eyes so that it's leveled at the man's stomach. He tilts the barrel at the man's face. What will you do? Shoot you, the boy says. The man smiles, dimpling his filthy cheeks. His teeth are as yellow as corn. I'd like to see you try. I'd aim right for the apricot, the medulla. You'd die instantly. You look like you're nine, the man mutters. The boy doesn't respond to this. He suspects the man's disease has infected his brain. Slowly, the man puts down the shovel and ducks out of the garage, plucking cobwebs from his face. In the sunlight, the wound on his leg looks even worse, shreds of skin stuck to it like grass. He reeks of gasoline and smoke and something else, a foul body smell like the inside of a ski boot. I was sterilizing my leg. Where do you live? the boy asks. In the mountains. The man looks at his gun. Don't worry, I'm by myself. We, we split up so we'd be harder to kill. Why? Well, things are easier to hunt in a herd. No, the boy says. Why did you leave? The fire burned up everything we were storing for winter. The man squints at the house. Can I trouble you for a spot of water? The boy lowers his gun, taking pity on this towering creature that seems to have stepped out of one of his dreams. In the dreams, the men are like beautiful monsters, stickered all over with leaves, roaming through town in the middle of the night. The boy leads the man inside the house, where his sister is still standing at the window. The man looks at her and nods. That someone should have hair growing out of his face appalls her even more than the smell. There's a grown man in my house, she says to herself, but she cannot reconcile the image this arouses in her brain with the stooped creature she sees limping into the kitchen. She's often imagined what it would be like to live with a father, a dashing giant, someone who'd buy her presents and whisk her chivalrously from danger, like the brave, mortal father she reads about. But this man is as far from a handsome creature as can be. And yet the sight of his sunburned hands, big enough to snap her neck, stirs something inside her, an unreachable itch. They have no chairs large enough for him, so the boy puts two side by side. He goes to the sink and returns with a mug of water. The man drinks the water in a single gulp, then immediately asks for another. How old are you? the girl says suspiciously. The man picks the twig from his beard. Forty-six. The girl snorts. No, really. I'm aging by the second. The girl blinks, amazed. She's lived for 30 years and can't imagine what it would be like for her body to mark the time. The man lays the twig on the table, ogling the cantaloupe sitting on the counter. The boy unsheathes the cleaver from the knife block and slices the melon in two, spooning out the pulp before chopping off a generous piece. He puts puts the orange smile of melon on a plate. The man devours it without a spoon, holding it like a harmonica. (laughs) Okay, you're going to have to tell me. Is this written for a specific audience? 
you, I mean, I assume that you write for, you know, literary journals and such. Uh-huh. Yes. So was there a, uh, a prompt for this story or is it all right from up here? There wasn't a prompt, no, and I had never written a piece of science fiction before. Because that's what this is. You've, it, set, you've created an entirely different world. I know, I know, and I think that uh, everybody was a bit nonplussed when I wrote it. <laughs> um, but it also was one of my more successful stories, I think. Uh, you know, where it came from was that I, um, I, I woke up one morning, and I don't know whether I had actually been dreaming about this or not. Mm-hmm. You know how... Salvador Dali apparently used to take naps with a um, pencil in his hand yep. so that when he fell asleep, the pencil would wake him up. So I don't know if it was swimming around in my subconscious and and survived the uh, transition from sleep to, to waking. But um, I just had this vision of a world in which grownups didn't exist anymore, or they did, but they were um, mythic in the way that sort of Bigfoot might be mythic. And right. so there were rumors that they existed. But um, I had this vision of a boy looking out the window and seeing this kind of mythic creature in his yard, a man who he'd never actually seen before. The green man. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, um, and then taking him in. And then as I, as I started to work on the story, I didn't really think of it as science fiction. I thought of it more uh, as being a, a fable of some kind. And it was a fable about uh, parenthood and a way of defamiliarizing the family so that we might look at it again uh, for the first time. And, uh, I mean, obviously I'm obsessed with family and with fathers in particular. Well, fathers, yes, come up over and over again. So uh, this was a way of, of looking at, at fatherhood um, from a new angle for me, which mm-hmm. is really why I did it. Um, and as I got deeper into it, I realized I was writing a piece of science fiction, and, um, and I started to own that. I mean, the first book that so I— Now you can go to the conventions, right? <laughs> no one's invited me. Well, okay. It's out there in, in the uh, ether now. You, it's, it's official. He's, he will take the invitation. <laughs> I mean, the first book that I ever read that really um, both kind of turned me on, but also um, into writing, but also gave me a sense of authorship uh, for the first time was Ray Bradbury's Collected Stories. I read it when I was about eight, I think. Which, which was in that one? Everything. Oh, all, all of, all of them together. Because I, huge. I remember in like in, in like nine in a in a group in the old paperbacks. So. Right. Yeah. This came out. I mean, I, he probably wrote because uh, he was. So the Martian was in there. Yes. Something wicked this way comes was in there. All of yeah, all of the stories up to a certain point in his career because this was in the seventies when Did I. Did they have it. the early version of Fahrenheit four five one? Well, but that's not a story, is it? A short yeah, story? Th- th- well, it was written as a short oh, story. Oh, it was written as a short story yeah. originally. Oh, I didn't know that. And, and then, then it, it appeared in uh, Playboy. Okay. And then it became longer in a book. Oh, so you're a Bradbury. Well, we did a, a, we did a thing a few years back on 451 four, for the you know the book reads thing across the nation. And right. we were the local station that did that. So, yeah. Yeah. I um, I remember some of the stories very, very well. I mean, I read the entire – it was a present for my brother for Christmas, and I read the whole thing. I don't think he touched it. Mm. Um, and I read some of those stories. He's, he's 10 years older than me. Oh, okay. So he, um, I don't think he ever touched the book. I read the entire thing and I read some of those stories over and over and over again. Um, but I remember finishing the book and then looking at the back and seeing, you know how they used to do those author's photos that would take up the entire back (laughs) do that cover of the book. And there he was, Ray Bradbury. And for the first time in my life, I thought that someone actually wrote this book, like actually composed the sentences it didn't just drop from heaven. Um, 
onto the page in immaculate form, like somebody labored over it. And and it was my first uh, real sense of authorship that somebody had created it. And I was so moved by that and also jealous, like uh, that this guy had created something that had um, transported me in this kind of profound way. So it was the first time I thought, wow, I kind of want to do that. It's, so, nice that, it's nice that you picked Bradbury because he's a really nice – he was a really nice guy. I so, never met yeah. him, unfortunately. Yeah, well, actually, I was in two panels with him and, and uh, shared a booth beside him at a book fair. So, mm. He yeah. seems like there's certain writers you read and you can tell that they're good people. You know, they're just – there's a warmth to their writing. And right. He seems to be right. We won't mention Stephen King, though. I'm not sure the warmth is in his writing. <laughs> not, I haven't read much You Stephen haven't King read? Oh, okay. So, I've read a little bit, but not Apparently, Wasn't he the, the best – most read author of the, the country. I'm not. I'm not. I wouldn't be surprised at all by that. Yeah, no. yeah. All right. So, let's go back. Let's pretend that you are. Uh, <laughs> I have to ask this question: Is this autobiographical? So we have uh, the one where you go to um, camp to learn to write. Writing uh-huh. camp, Massachusetts writing camp, right? Yes. Um, it's an arts camp, and um, it's not autobiographical. I mean, I did go to uh, a summer school um, mm-hmm. at Andover. Close. That's close. Um, yeah. And uh, that is actually the first time I ever took a creative writing workshop. Um, but uh, the one part did of that story— Did you share a room with is this fellow does in the story? It's he's not um, lifted from life, but he's inspired in a vague way by somebody I did share a room with, and it ended terribly. Mm. Um, he was somebody who was uh, you know lived in town, um, and he did play the saxophone, not the trombone. Mm-hmm. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, we didn't get along very well, and he ended up um, washing all of my clothes as a way of ma- trying to make up. Uh, with me after we'd had an argument, but he washed all the whites and the darks together. So he turned they turned pink or blue. Yeah, they turned pink. Yeah. So all the clothes that I had for the summer were pink. <laughs> um, and of course I was, you know, 15 and didn't want to want to wear pink, pink yes. clothes. Um, so I got, uh, I got upset with him and I, and we actually ended up having, he <laughs> tried to choke me. <laughs> um, uh, so it got kind of violent and I had to, we had to get separate rooms. Yeah, what happens in the story, although I don't want to give too much away, is it becomes a mystery. Yes, well. Because there's a a burglar ransacking the the campus of this school. Well, I think, you know, that story is about a number of things, but one thing that's about is this kind of vague sense of guilt that I still have that I should have treated this guy better than I did or at least understood where he was coming from. That comes across. It's still there on the page. Yeah, interesting. Um. But also, I also took. I used to take a, a very cavalier attitude um, towards writing about real people, and um, I. This was partly because I started out. About the first story that I ever published was a story about my father, mm-hmm. and it was uh, at a period in my life, in my twenties, early twenties, when I we were very estranged. And I wrote this story that was so blatantly about him. You know, the the protagonist of the story, the the story, this story, which was never published in a book form, was about a kid who comes home one day and finds that all of his furniture is in the swimming pool. It was called Atlantis, and the father has been having an affair. Um, Anyway, everything about this father was uh, very similar to my own father. He, He got 
the gout when he ate asparagus um, and so on. His ba- the background is very similar. So I was terrified that he would read it. And he did end up reading this story because it was published in a literary magazine in Utah where he was living. And someone told him and he picked it up and, and he called me. And I hadn't talked to him in a couple of years. And I picked up the phone and my dad said, Eric, this is your father and I, I read your short story. And my heart just sank. I thought that this And was he sounded that way. He did. That's yes. just <laughs> <laughs> He said, I read your short story. Oh, my God. That was so funny. That guy was such a jerk. <laughs> he didn't see himself he didn't see in it, it at Isn't all. that and interesting? So that gave me this kind of license that I thought it gave me this license. To you know, you've got a short – you've got a story right there. <laughs> Obviously not your father and you, and but you could certainly come up with a character who – wrote about some relative and was terrified they'd find out about it. Yeah. Well, what I was going to say that this story, you know, the reason, one of the reasons I wrote this story is that I, my wife had a, um, I mean, this is just a sort of classic um, adage that you see a lot of writers uh, have probably taped over their computer, but my wife had on a note card taped over her computer, write as if everyone you know is dead. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to give you permission mm-hmm. to write about whatever you want without worrying about your mother reading no, it. Not that just changing their name's not enough, huh? No, it's not enough. <laughs> but my experience up to then is that people will get mad about things that you didn't anticipate that weren't about them. Um, but the things that seem to be mostly about them, they don't they don't uh, notice or it doesn't bother them. But then I, I published a piece. Then I started writing creative nonfiction, and I, I published huh. a piece about my father in GQ magazine and my brother, um, who had a very different childhood than I did since we were 10 years apart and a very different relationship to our father, um, was very, very upset about it. And I started to rethink that. I, I did start to think that um, perhaps you should write as if everyone you know is dead, but before you get to that point, you need to think very carefully about whether that's the or ethical thing sure to do. make sure that they are. Make sure they're actually dead. Yes. <laughs> I mean, don't kill them. But yes, make well, sure. Well, no, but of course, then, then your siblings pick it up and say, no, dad wasn't like that, or mom wasn't like that, or aunt so-and-so. Yes. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I read a, my book, uh, first novel, was about uh, set in Massachusetts in 1921-22, um, and about my mother, and I used real people in it because she talked about them like they were alive, and the most of them, all of them were dead, mm. um, which you would think would be safe, but it wasn't. You know, when I went back and up the streets, they'd come up to me and say, you were writing about my aunt. Oh, yeah. And she was just like that. <laughs> <laughs> all good. All good. So you never know. You never know. People do feel very protected. Well, then the next question, obviously, of the stories in here are, are let me, how am I going to do this? Let's talk. Did you ever work at a bookstore? Is that where independence came from? Um, I didn't. I have never worked in a bookstore. You, um, okay. <laughs> but I did. Yeah, I managed so I, a bookstore, I, so I can tell you that what parts of what you wrote are exactly right. I, I did some research, yeah. Yeah. Can I have you read uh, the part about the game that they play? It's page 82 to 84. Sure. sure. Let me find it. It's they're working at a place called Being and Books, right? Yes. And I think you should tell the setup with the uh, staple gun before you get to Sure, that. yeah. Well, actually, this... Um, this story was the one story in the book that came from a specific kind of assignment from a magazine. Because, wow. uh, McSweeney's magazine asked me to write. Um, they had a special California Bookstore Day um, edition issue. And they asked me to write a story that had something to do with books or a bookstore. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and the reason I wrote this story was because of something I saw at Powell's Books in Portland. Oh. Um, I went there, and I'm obviously – 
always uh, I'm a big believer in um, patronizing independent bookstores as opposed to other <laughs> sorts of corporate bookstores. And um, I was in Powell's bookstore and I saw somebody, um, an employee of Powell's Books, who was very well informed, spend 15 to 20 minutes helping a customer find the perfect book mm-hmm. that they were looking mm-hmm. for. And then when that employee left, the customer went on Amazon on his phone and ordered the and book. Ordered the book. And it it infuriated me infuriated me so much I almost went up to the to the guy and uh, actually it was a, it was a woman it was two women I almost went up to to them and complained directly but instead I wrote the story seek my revenge that way but right. Um, right. so at the beginning of this story um, uh, one of the employees sees something like this happen and uh, is in the middle of staple gunning flyers up for a um, talk about Isaac Babel. And walks over to the customer. He's having a particularly bad day to begin with, and he walks over to the customer and staple guns the customer's chest with the flyer. With the flyer, right? So that's how the the story begins. Okay. So he's not in good graces with the owner at the time, right? And so we want page uh, eighty-two to start. Start um, right where, right here, right here, right there. It okay was, and then okay. stopped. Okay. Yeah. It was a slow day. Most days were slow ones, to be honest, so I I decided to surprise him with a round of highly specific yet obscure. This was a game we used to play. One of us would pretend to be a customer and come up with an outrageous request, the harder the better. It was good practice for the Christmas season. Rogelio, the reigning champ, had never once been stumped. Now I thought I'd give him a chance to best me at something, a peace offering. If our friendship collapsed, it wouldn't be on me. Do you work here, I asked him. I don't feel like playing, Rahelia said, bent over an invoice. I'm looking for a gift. Leave me alone, I sighed. I've been to 12 different bookstores. You you probably couldn't help me anyway. He looked up at me then. He could never resist the challenge and narrowed his eyes. And as soon as he did, as soon as his eyes narrowed in their cocky, all-knowing, invincible way, something snagged in my chest. I wanted more than anything to beat him. I tried to think of something preposterous, a request from hell. All right, he said. What is it? I cleared my throat. A dog ate my face off, and now I have the face of a dead person, you know, a donor's. She donated her face before she died. And? Well, I need to buy a book for the dead person's daughter to make her feel less creeped out that I have her mother's face. I smirked at Rogelio, waiting for him to look flummoxed. I'm in a bit of a rush, I said. Come this way. I don't blame you for being stumped. Come this way, he shouted. First he led me into psychology, where he grabbed R.D. Lang's The Divided Self. Clever, but not enough to shake my confidence. Still, Rogelio was just warming up. In Asian lit, he handed me a book called Losing Face and Finding Grace, which (laughs) made me smile despite myself. I waited for him to smile back to acknowledge the absurdity of my challenge, but he wasn't done. This was his reason for being to make little cities out of books, each one a bridge to the next. And so he swung without breaking his stride and ushered me to pet care, where he tossed me Feed Your Pet Right, the authoritative guide to feeding your dog and cat, and then on to cooking to pull out the omnivore's dilemma. I laughed. I couldn't help it. By now, Lalima and Hirsch had caught wind of something, and they emerged from the back office to watch. I explained my request on the way to Children's, where Rogelio handed me Are You My Mother?, 
which led him to That's Not Your Mommy Anymore, a zombie tale, a book I'd never even seen before, and then into his bread and butter, used fiction, where the books came fast and furious, the anatomy lesson, the double, family resemblances. He was surfing the bookstore, making connections a computer couldn't, and it was beautiful to watch. We were his audience, his apostles, led further into a kingdom of his making. He pirouetted into crime, where he grabbed the talented Mr. Ripley before doubling back for the Scarlet Pimpernel, a pairing that baffled me for a second before I turned with my tower of books and explained that they were both about impersonation, and Hirsch and Lima grinned. We were all weirdly triumphant. For Rahelio's quest had become something else, a pain to be, being in books, to the promise that you could piece together a life story with books, with our books and our knowledge and our pure, glorious skill. And glowing with pride, Rahelio veered into lit crit and topped my stack off with the power of Thetis, illusion and interpretation in the Iliad, which stumped me until he said, Thetis, the immortal mother of Achilles. And it was like he was describing the bookstore itself, our immortal mother, which would live on and take care of us forever, no matter what she looked like. Ah. So I immediately had to ask you this. Have you ever played that in when you're doing a reading? Did you read that part and then ask the people in the audience to come up with books they could put on this short list? Of <laughs> no, I haven't. Because I, I haven't. thought of The Man in the Iron Mask as an obvious. <laughs> that would be good. You know, yeah. so, um, and I'm sure there's others that if you really thought about it, because it's intriguing. Yeah. And this, of course, these facial transplants are really happening. They're really happening. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. just kind of amazing and science fiction-ish in itself. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah, there's a whole other story there. Okay, we got to take a break here. So, you are listening to April's Word-by-Word Word Conversations with Writers on North Bay Public Media, KRCB-FM, where today's guest is the celebrated novelist and master of the short story, Eric Puchner, reading from and chatting about his latest collection called Last Day on Earth. Now... There's a question, because you put this together this way. You have the last day on Earth be the last story in the book. But it fits. If you were to take, a, assume that there was a character who ran consistently through, who was have, watching what's happening with his parents go through the angst of separation and then, you know, living with the mother by himself and the father has this and this. This story kind of ends that subtext. Story, right it does i mean a lot of the stories are about uh family um and but not just traditional families sort of family units and right. the family unit of a right. bookstore what it right. means to to be close to your fellow employees. and you've got a father figure in there too as the owner and there's a father figure. yeah exactly good um and so it just seemed like the the right ending both in terms of um the note on which the story ends i don't want to give the ending no away, but we the, have to be careful here <laughs> um but also this sense of um, leading to uh, the, the story is about a um, boy whose father has um, left the family. And he's two million dollars in debt um, or invested or invested. Right. According to the according to the protagonist, who's the, the son. The son is living with his mother. Um, who's separated from the father. And the mother, the father used to be a big hunter and has uh, two German short hair pointers. Um, and they lived in Maryland and he hunted a lot. They've moved out to California. And uh, now that he's not living with them anymore, the dogs are in a pen and they're getting fat and kind of sick because they're not being taken care of properly because the father doesn't take care of them. 
And the mother has contacted the father um, many times, asking him to please take care of these two poor poor dogs, and the, and the father hasn't. He's refused to, or just, you know, that hasn't, hasn't. gotten around to right. Um And so the mother finally has to make the very difficult decision to take the dogs to the pound and have them put down. Right. But there's more to it than that because the the mother hasn't made a big deal about this, but essentially they've been leasing their house. The lease has come up. They're going to have to move, and they're, she assumes they're not going to have a place where they go, which will take the dogs. Yes, so they face a very uncertain future in the same ways that the, the dogs face an uncertain future in the, um, in the story. Um, there's a sort of direct parallel between, uh, not that um, the mother and her son are going to die, <laughs> but uh, there's a sense of, um, of a kind of a doom-like uncertainty that's hovering above the family, uh, both financially but also kind of emotionally. And physically. Because you got me, I'm not going to give it away. Okay. But they go to the beach so that the dogs can run for their last day on Earth, although which isn't technically it's 72 hours before their last day on Earth. That's, yes. Right? But something happens at the beach that kept me on edge for, I don't know, five or six pages wondering what was going to happen. Hmm. I assume you did that intentionally. You left it hanging. Well, I mean, without short, giving anything away. Okay, I'll try not to give anything away, but I can talk about the way that sh- short stories often function, or at least mine. Okay. Um, which is that, um, I mean, I think that you have to create a sense of narrative drive. Uh, and you, I mean, I, I feel like in some sort of, in some literary circles, the word plot is kind of a dirty word. I don't feel that way in the slightest, I think. I mean, what is plot? Plot is really just you have a character and that character wants something. So what do you do? Slice of life, no plot, just no beginning, middle, or end? I think that people sometimes mistake the word plot for something else. Ah which is a story that is all about plot and nothing else. Yeah, that can um, be really dry. It just doesn't have any depth to it. It's It's not not a story that you would want to reread. You know, as Nabokov says, it's all about rereading. You know, I mean, you read a story once, (laughs) what can you you say about it? Um, You can't even tell me that it's a good story unless you reread it. Yeah, and going back to uh, Bradbury, who obviously caught you so you would reread the story. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You want a story that you will reread. That's why I'm very against kind of twist endings that are Twilight Zony or even O. Henry like. I just, if the story exists for that surprise at the end and that's the sole reason for its existence, then there's no reason to go back and revisit. Well, that's if true. you're going to do that, you have to give clues along the way to, yeah. There, you do, a, there, to do yeah. that too, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So we aren't going to talk any more about the last day on earth, the last <laughs> story in the book, because we don't want to give any more away. Is no. that right? I don't want. Yes, I don't want to give the ending no, away. No, don't. Let's not do that. Well, that's we, that's up to our listeners to go out and get the book and then find out for themselves. Now, of course, it's a collection of um... <laughs> all right. Yeah, the one we can't read from uh, is called Mothership, in which a self-involved young woman recently released from drug treatment dons a rubber mask to take her niece and nephew trick or treating, and a horny neighbor mistakes her for her sister. That's how I've summarized it. That about right. Yes, that's about right. Except it's not uh, drug treatment necessarily. Okay, she's uh, suicidal. Oh, su- okay. Yeah, well, so. all right. Uh, anyway, she was under care for yes. some period of time. Exactly, right. mm-hmm. and, so, and so has not been. Um, and then there's the strange thing from Brood X, which is I can. It has some sex in it, but I can read this. You can read this part. Okay. So this I refer to as the first time meeting, um, page three to seven. 
Brood X. Okay. All right. Gotta go back. There you go. Okay. Great. Right. So she rang the bell. She rang the bell. Now let's give us a little heads up because this is three pages in, and yes, we've got a, a family who have some neighbors who recently moved in next door. Yes, we have the. Uh, this story begins um, with the sentence, it was the summer of the cicadas, and um, this is about, this is set in Baltimore, um, and it's actually based on this very strong, palpable memory I have of the 17-year cicadas coming up from the earth and And do people know over what our... they are? They're these kind of, I don't know what you call, insects, like a, like a, uh, like a, a cricket lo- or locust. something, locust, yeah. 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 Um, but they rub their wings to, or legs together and make this rather drumming constant noise it's very loud yeah. and um the 17 year cicadas uh they come out of the earth and they just live for a few days um every 17 years but they take over mm-hmm. the the city um uh they you know my memory of them is just they they were everywhere i mean they took over the trees they were um and, and they they leave their skins behind right. um and so there was something about that image of cicadas leaving this sort of perfect shell behind um, that made me spark my imagination and made me think of a um, sort of pre-adolescent, verging on adolescent kid who is starting to um, inhabit a strange body that he doesn't recognize Mm -hmm. um, and leave his old body behind as well. So that's the metaphorical parallel there. Okay. Um, and and how strange and confusing that that might be for him. So we begin the story with the cicadas coming up from the earth and sort of taking over the neighborhood um, and leaving these sort of glass-like shells everywhere. Um, and meanwhile, this new family has just moved in down the street from the protagonist um, narrator. Uh, they've moved there from California, so they are so they're strange. They're strange. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so this is where we begin. They're, they've just walked to the house, and um, the, the narrator is with his mother welcoming, welcoming this, this, these new neighbors to the neighborhood. She rang the bell, and Mrs. Winters' daughter answered the door, dressed in a tunic with little paisleys on it, her long, ferny lashes seeming to stick together for a second when she blinked at us. She looked, I thought, like the sort of woman a movie monster might snatch from a crowd. At 35, my mother was one of the younger parents on the block, but watching her greet our new neighbor, I felt for the first time that she was old. The woman introduced herself, Karen Jennings was her name, and stared past us at an icicle of cicadas hanging from a nearby oak. My mother made a face. Hideous, aren't they? Oh, I don't know. Something kind of fabulous about them, don't you think? Mrs. Jennings closed her eyes for a moment as if listening to the trees. They certainly make your life, um, biblical. (laughs) My mom tried to smile at her and peer into the house at the same time. I had never heard anyone's mother talk like this before, describe a plague of insects as fabulous. A thrill breezed through me. As I ducked out from under my mother's hand, a boy who looked about my age came to the door with something jutting from his lips. A cigarette. Little shreds of tobacco poked out of the crumpled tip. My mother stopped craning her neck to see inside and took a step backward. This is J.J., Mrs. Jennings said. Jules, Mom. Jules, she said, rolling her eyes. My mom was staring at the boy's lips. 
Where did you get that cigarette? I'm not actually smoking, he said without taking it from his mouth. It's just for fun, Mrs. Jennings said. In his case, at least. I'm in it to the grisly end. The boy plucked the cigarette from his lips and weighed it and wedged it behind his ear. I did not like the looks of him. He had freckles like me, except he was skinny and frizzy-haired and wearing long pants, corduroys, in the middle of summer. Plus, he had something wrong with his eye. One of his pupils had a black line spoking out from it, like the hand of a watch, stuck at six o'clock. He caught me staring at it, I think, because he turned away and went back inside the house. It seemed impossible to me that this freaky kid and gorgeous mother were related. My mother hesitated when Mrs. Jennings invited us in for some coffee, but her curiosity got the best of her, and I followed her into the Jennings's house, which was still lined with boxes. There were paintings everywhere, leaning against some of the weirdest furniture I'd ever seen. One chair looked like a bunch of curtain rods with a strip of brown-spotted hide stretched across them, as if a lunatic had tried to make a trampoline out of a cow. I couldn't resist touching it as I passed. Mrs. Jennings took the brownies for my mother and served them on plates that didn't match, along with something that looked like ice cubes rolled in pink powder. Turkish delight, she called the cubes, explaining how she'd ordered them from a shop in the East Village. I didn't know what the East Village was, but my mom's expression said that it was a place she didn't care for. Chewing on a cube whose deliciousness surprised me, I wandered over to a painting leaning against the far wall, an eerie desert scene with a circular forest in the middle of it, surrounded by a fence. In the foreground, stretching toward the forest, was an animal I didn't recognize. It was strange and horrible-looking, something like a hairless zebra, but with its head sprouting vertically from its neck and a little tadpole mouth. It didn't have any ears. Looking closer, I saw that the opening of the forest was framed by a pair of enormous female legs spread like the giant doors of a gate. That's the sex painting, Jules said to me, checking to see we were out of earshot. Sex? You can stop there. <laughs> All right, I think that'll get everybody interested enough to find out about these people who moved into the block. Always end with the time. word sex, That's and right. then people That's go by the book. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um... And I think people can get the idea that there are, when you can pick up each of these stories, you could you don't have to read them in sequence. You could pick up, pick and choose, um, and you're going to go to a different place in each one, which is not a bad thing at all. Well, thank you. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's a it's a diverse collection, and I know that. Um, you know, collections are strange beasts because there are, are collections out there that feel more like novels, you know, mm -hmm. story cycles, which have protagonists that return from story to story, or mm -hmm. they're all set in the same place, like Dubliners. Um, We've had some writers in here who wrote them as originally short stories and then, you know, turned them into novels. Yes, and I, I honestly have mixed feelings about that. I mean, I, I'm madly in love with this short story as a genre and as a form, and it seems to me a very discreet sort of entity than... Um, it's completely different than the novel. It's very challenging to do, for me at least. I think they're hard to write. I mean, some people say they're harder to write than a novel, and I think that's baloney. Novels are also well, novels difficult. are time consuming, but <laughs> a short story you have to be know your art, your craft, and they just go for a different effect. I think. Yeah. I mean, um, for me, the short story. I mean, the history of the short story is one that deals with the uncanny. You know, I mean, the original, the first short stories. Were talking about um, Irving and Hawthorne and um, right, Poe right. were dealing 
Um, you feel like you're closer to Poe in Baltimore? Um, Poe is, I mean, our football team is called the Ravens. So (laughs) (laughs) they take Poe very seriously. There's lots of streets, I remember names I remember from my visit that have literary references uh, of his work. There are. It's an interesting place. I mean, you know, when you go, you can't go to Prague these days without seeing like a bunch of Kafka T-shirts. Right. But many of those people have never read Kafka before. So I, I feel a little bit. I, I love Baltimore. I think it's a wonderful town. But this kind of obsession with Poe as <clears throat> um, as a cultural figure is different than sort of a true obsession with his work or an interest necessarily in reading his work. Um, it's like the Sylvia Plath cult. Kind of. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. But on the other hand, they're selling lots of T-shirts. With... They're selling lots of T-shirts. That's they're right. marketing. They're, they're marketing. marketing um, to great effect. So where do you go from? You've done the novel. You've done uh, the short story. Which uh, brings you the most gratification? I like them both. Um, oh, this and... is the father who can't pick their child, huh? <laughs> Maybe. I I do feel pretty strongly that most writers are better at one thing or the other. I mean, you look at a writer like Raymond Carver or Alice Munro, um, and, uh, I mean, they're wonderful, wonderful story writers. Carver apparently tried to write a novel, and it was a complete disaster, mm. and it was never published. Alice Munro has one novel, yeah. um, and it's good, but it's not as good as her short stories. Um, she was more innovative as a short story writer. It's very it's I think the ones the writers who can do both extremely well are very rare. Um and even the ones who do both very well, like John Updike, I still like one better than the other. I think he's I love his short stories. <laughs> so um so there is a little bit I, I do feel hesitant just to say that I, I like them both and love them both, but I, I really do and what's What's working for me right now is going from writing a collection and then moving on to the novel and writing a novel. So you're and working on a novel a now? And, and we can assume? I am working on a novel right now, right. yes. And um, it's set where? It's set in Montana, partly. Because you've never been there or lived there, huh? <laughs> No, I've spent quite a bit of time oh, okay. there, actually. But I am a little self-conscious about that because there's there's such a thing as the Montana novel, you yes. know, and it's very um, – uh, I f- people feel very protective of its sort of yes, literary territory. the writers from Montana, have, they have their own cult. They do. Yeah. It's not one of those novels. It's not about fly fishing. So um, <laughs> it's said partly in L.A. and partly in Montana so far. We'll see what happens. Um, but it is also, it's um, at least in the background, it's about uh, global warming too. Um, I, it's in its early stages. I've only written about 100 pages, so. So are you inspired by your sense of place then? It sounds that way, since you write about places you know. I am very, yeah, I often the beginnings of a story for me have to do with the setting and my feelings for a particular place and my um, desire to capture that in words. Um, and I find California extremely evocative for me and um, Southern California in particular because it's both so beautiful in terms of its landscape mm-hmm. and so fundamentally bizarre in terms of the way that that landscape has been transformed by Southern California culture and architecture right, right. that it's just endlessly fascinating for me because it's such a, just a surreal kind of uh, place and, and lifestyle. So even though I don't live there anymore, I still find myself writing about okay. it. Right. Well, it's interesting. Let me share something with you. There was one of your stories that I, 
I can't say the word hate exactly, <laughs> but uh, I was distressed okay. when I read it. And uh, do you know which one it might be? Has anyone mentioned this to you? Ah, you were distressed when you read it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. Oh, was it Trojan Horse Hate You Back? Heavenland. Oh, Heavenland. Okay. Now, the reason is, is that I'd had Joshua Moore last month. Mm-hmm. And I know if you've read his story, I, I, in San I do Francisco. know Joshua a little bit, yeah. And it, well, I think he writes the same kind of thing consistently. It's mm-hmm. somebody who is completely strung out on whatever, you know, concoction he's consumed that morning or afternoon or evening. Yeah. And we're just coming out of rehab. And then something happens. And it was too. And then I did uh, uh, J.D. Vance's Hillbilly Elegy, mm-hmm. which, if you've not read, you should. I want to read it. It's on my list. Yeah. But he talks about his mother, who was an addict on anything that came along and serial husbands and, you know, the boyfriend of the moment, some of which are talked about in your, you know, similar kinds of things in some mm-hmm. of your stories. But uh, the mom isn't that strung out. Mm-hmm. In this case, just to bring people up to date, basically a mom goes to biological father of her baby and says, "Can you take care of the baby? Here's baby Bjorn, in you know, baby the baby Bjorn, which everybody knows is that kind of kangaroo pouch that men wear in front of them to carry the, you know, the infant around." And he he says, "Great, I can do it. This will be fine." And then he realizes there's a pool party, and he's been invited, mm-hmm. and he goes with the baby in tow. And when he's given the bag of Coke and it splits open, it falls all over the baby. And that's where I got, got upset. Because it's the, you know, the the un, the un infant, mm-hmm. the child at risk, the, you know, the, the girl yeah. at risk kind of issue. That, yeah. Well, I meant it. I meant it to upset people. Good, because it did. <laughs> um, it, is a, it is a bit of a disturbing story. Um, I was interested in... I'm interested in trying to write things that seem impossible. Uh, that's the way I kind of double dare myself sometimes to to get interested. Impossible in to write or impossible to happen and exist. Impossible to write. Well, I do think, I do think actually, a story's traffic in the improbable. I mean, the, the the way that a story, a good story, works, I think, is that the writer has enough authority that he makes the improbable or she makes the improbable seem possible. Mm-hmm. Um, like a. Thirty-year-old who doesn't look over over what seven or eight, right? Right. Yes. Well, yes. That is very much about a world that um, does not exist and is not possible on our own, and trying to make it seem convincing on some level. Definitely. Um, this story, I had that that image, which was both awful, disturbing, and comic. Which was somebody who was walking around with a baby in a baby Bjorn and accidentally spills some cocaine on the baby's head and and snorts it off of the baby's head. Um, and I thought that is not a story, Eric, that you can write. Um, and but so I wrote it anyway. The words got down there. Huh? So I wrote it because I challenged myself <laughs> that way. Um, right. I know other writers who work this way too. I, you know, I think if you run it, if you keep doing the same thing over and over again, and you don't surprise yourself, then you're never going to surprise the, the reader, and you're not going to grow as a writer. And so I, I definitely challenge. And one of the things I love about this short story is that it's a way of challenging myself. Mm-hmm. You know? um, and then you can put that in your drawer or whatever you put it in and go on and do something so pretty different with different move on to something else. Yeah, yeah. I mean that story is uh, I mean, you know, so many of the stories are about parenthood and I thought now I'm going to choose the sort of worst possible parent I can, the most reluctant parent. The this 
the reason that he's so reluctant is that he's got an invo- he's an artist um, who's gotten involved with a woman <laughs> um, specifically because she told him she never wanted. In to fact, have let's let's read a little bit because this doesn't this isn't the part with the uh, the coke on the head. It's when he arrives at the party. It's page one twenty eight twenty nine short section. Sure. When he meets this other person who's at the party. Okay. Okay. It starts up here. Yes. Kevin Kevin didn't admit to himself where he was going, even when he turned on Waverly and saw the parked cars and the dead potted plants in front of Druvy's Spanish colonial. The door was open, and he could hear the unsk, unsk, unsk of dance music coming from inside. The party was in full swing. He tucked Arrow's hat into his back pocket and stepped inside, confronted by a crowd of 20-somethings in bathing suits and asymmetrical haircuts. The musty smell of pot smoke permeated the room. As far as Kevin could tell, there were no other children. He decided this was okay. It was cool and subversive to bring your baby to a party. In any way, Arrow was a virtuosic napper. He could sleep through an earthquake. Kevin walked through the house, hunting for some people his own age, and ended up on the back porch squinting at the amoeboid blob of Druvy's swimming pool. A few people were standing in the shallow end, sipping drinks and wading through a film of ash. Druvy, however, was nowhere in sight. Kevin walked over to the giant cooler next to the barbecue, doing his best to fish out a beer before, without waking Arrow. He turned around and was confronted by a woman in enormous glasses, who startled so much that they nearly slid off her face. Her nose was round and small as a bonbon. Like Charlotte's, it seemed ill-equipped to keep anything on her face. What's wrong? The woman pushed her glasses back up with one finger. I didn't see your baby. Is he okay? He's asleep. Are you sure? Kevin nodded. He looks kind of dead. He's not dead, Kevin insisted. The woman did not seem convinced. She plucked the little umbrella out of her drink and took a swig. She was Asian-American, Chinese, Kevin guessed, and was wearing a midriff-bearing shirt and a humongous belt buckle shaped like an armadillo. Her waist bulged over the belt in a way that would have been easy to conceal with a longer shirt. Kevin found it refreshingly Midwestern, this willingness to advertise your plumpness. I hate babies, the woman said. You do? Yeah, they're just so, I don't know, stupid. Well, their brains haven't developed yet. Exactly, she said. <laughs> I could just see meeting somebody like that. You know, <laughs> that they, they think that whatever they think is the way the rest of the world should think. Well, I mean, I, this story is also uh, very much about um, Silver Lake, where I used to live in L.A., ah. which has become this epicenter of hipness. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, although there are plenty of families in Silver Lake and, and young children, there's also this sort of certain kind of Silver Laker, and here I'm alienating all my Silver Lake fans, <laughs> all, all two of them. Um, but um, uh, there's a certain kind of like Silver Lake hipster who really – dislikes children um and you know they have their little but they probably have dogs yes they have their little um toy dogs yeah that they put in a little carrier exactly um in fact their own baby dog bjorn exactly yes um i've actually i encountered actual hostility towards my children you know i take them to a cafe or something um in a sort of how can you do this to this poor innocent in the world the way it is etc well there's that you know, there's the concern about, you know, overpopulation. And those are actually legitimate concerns. This is just annoyance that there would be a young child, uh-huh. you know, in yeah. someone's you know, immediate surroundings. So, um, 
So maybe I was trying to take a little bit of revenge on those people with this story as well, but it is very much an L.A. story, very much about um, sort of this one L.A. artist who's become quite successful and this other L.A. artist who is less successful in his feelings of envy. Okay, well, this has been great. It's an hour already. Can you believe that? Wow. Yeah. Fabulous. Well, that was really fun. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. What we have been doing for the last hour is uh, interviewing, talking with a man who's written a combination of nine short stories and crammed them all between the, the front cover and the back cover of a book, which he's entitled The Last Day on Earth. Run out, pick up a copy, read it, share it with your friends. No, actually have them go out and buy a copy, too. <laughs> Independent bookstores, of course, are the best place to do this, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Our radio engineer for today's show has been Sonia Reddy. Our station manager is Sean Knight. Radio coordinator, Wendy Nicholson. Our theme music is by Bill Conti, and I am your host, Gil Manser. We want to invite you to listen to our next word-by-word broadcast from 4 to 5 on the second Sunday in May. Until then, we can remind you that the podcasts of previous word-by-word shows are available free on iTunes or at krcb.org. 